Hello and welcome to episode 74. Today we are going to do something a little bit different. With Reformation Day quickly approaching, we are going to reforge a past episode. In this episode, we will once again hear from Dr. Eugene Bowe about the impact the Reformation has had on the church and on our understanding of the gospel today. We hope that you enjoy a reforge of episode 22. Hello and welcome to the CLB Forge podcast. This is the show to help equip you and your church for mission, ministry, and multiplying disciples. I'm Mike Natal. And I'm Ryan Nilsson. Welcome to episode 22. We have a very special guest with us today. He has a Master's of Divinity from Lutheran Brethren Seminary, a Master's of Sacred Theology from Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and a PhD in Theology from Concordia. He has served congregations at uh, Emmanuel Lutheran Brethren Church in Jewell, Iowa, 59th Street Lutheran Brethren Church in Brooklyn, New York, Inspiration Lutheran Brethren Church in Wapit in North Dakota, Bethel Lutheran Brethren Church in Huntington Station, New York, Hope Lutheran Brethren Church in Appleton, Wisconsin. He currently serves as the pastor at Trinity Lutheran in Wendell, Minnesota, and currently serves as the research professor of systematic and historical theology at Lutheran Brethren Seminary. He's has a number of publications, numerous academic pieces, and uh, related to systematic theology and history. He's written a number of articles for Faith and Fellowship, and has a couple of, uh, particularly we want to mention a couple of studies that he has published through Faith and Fellowship Press, Friendship with God and Identity in Christ. He has served in a number of leadership roles on our Synodical Council, uh, as Acting President of Lutheran Brethren Seminary, as Dean of Lutheran Brethren Seminary, and again, he currently teaches systematic theology, preaching, ethics. He's our seminary's representative to our theological council, and he's in his 38th year of service at Lutheran Brethren Seminary. He and his wife, Gudrun, have four adult daughters who live in Israel, Minnesota, Washington State, and Chad, and they have nine grandchildren. Thank you so much. A special welcome to Dr. Gene Bow. Thank you, Dr. Bow, for being with us today. Oh, what a privilege to uh, be a part of this, and I'm happy to uh, join you for this podcast today. Yeah, this is tremendous. I mean, you are a busy individual, and we can tell that just by your bio. So thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to meet with us. And as our listeners are going to hear, we have you on if you're aware of... Um, where this dropped in the calendar year, uh, it's close to the Reformation. And for those individuals who know you, Dr. Bo, they know that one thing that you love to talk about is Luther. And Luther was so influential when it came to the Reformation. And so in a little bit, we're going to have a conversation about the Reformation, and we're going to let you just take over, and we're going to bask in your knowledge as you share more about the Reformation with us. But before we get to that point, I would love for you to give our listeners a little inside information of what your spiritual journey was like up till this point. Well, I was, uh, my physical life journey began in Ottawa, Illinois, uh, where I was born. And uh, shortly after, year or two after I was born, my parents moved to a farm. So I grew up on a farm. Uh, part of it was in east of, or west of Ottawa and then uh, north of Ottawa. 
Uh, I am the oldest of four children. Uh, my uh, The sister born uh, after me uh, recently uh, went home to be with the Lord this past uh, August. Uh, my parents are both deceased, um, although um, uh, my father was uh, a World War II vet, so my parents uh, dated during the time when he was in the Army uh, for four and a half years overseas in World War II and fought in North Africa, uh, Sicily, Italy, and Normandy. And uh, so uh, my parents were older when I was born, uh, but I still had the gift of my parents. For many years, my, my mother lived to be just about 99. My father lived to be 101. So uh, even though um, uh, they were married and had children after they were, when they were 30 and later, uh, we still were gifted with a long time with our family. I was uh, baptized and a part of the Lutheran Brethren Church there in Ottawa, uh, Bethel Lutheran Brethren Church. And um, uh, for the early part of my life, my parents moved. And so we attended another church uh, for about five or six years that were what was closer to where we, we lived. Um, and after confirmation time, um, I began to um, uh, drift in terms of my spiritual life was concerned. I suppose that uh, there was the pressure of peer pressure. Um, there was the um, uh, lure of um, uh, a life uh, with greater freedom. And uh, so... I kind of went my own way um, during my latter teenage years, and it wasn't until my later teen years, early 20, uh, that um, I came back to the Lord, and uh, or the Lord found me and brought me home. And uh, so during that period of time, I finished high school. I had the aspiration to be a veterinarian. And uh, I was just too immature to go to college. And so then I went to work for Caterpillar Tractor Company and worked in their factory management training program. So I had set my sights on being a manager uh, for Caterpillar Tractor Company in uh, one of their factories. And that's when the Lord uh, really seriously got a hold of me and began to work in my life. And I sensed the call to ministry, so uh, the rest is kind of history from there. Uh, on, a, on a visit to Fergus Falls, uh, I met uh, Goodwin, who was a student at the Bible school at that time. And we began a um, dating relationship, and then we were later married in 1969. So we have been married now 51-plus years. And it was the fall of that. I had completed one year of seminary prior to my completing my college. So I did my college while I was serving uh, the church in Jewell, Iowa. So I kind of preached myself through college. And um, so I began married life in 1969. And ministry life became a licensed pastor, lay pastor in the Church of Lutheran Brethren in uh, August of 1969 and have been on the roster 
as a licensed and then later ordained. So this is my, I'm starting my 52nd year of ministry actually in the LB and I'm only 50 years old, so I don't know how that works up, but I, I use new math. <laughs> That's that common core math right there. That's how you can get that many years in. So. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Bo, thank you for your extensive work, not just pastoring, but also at the seminary and also for being one of the leaders on the uh, Theological Council, too. Uh, you do extensive work, not just in the, the public eye, but also behind the scenes, as people can see from the extensive library that is behind you, which I am confident that you've read every single one of those books. And some of them, oh. you've probably read more than one. Oh, did I glitch out again? No, but oh, I did want to, maybe it's too late to do this now. But I did want to ask Dr. Bo, what, and I have a prediction about this, right? What, when people see your library, what's the first, what's the most commonly asked question? Do you read all those books? Yeah, that's, uh, have you read, have you read all of these books? Okay. Uh, how many, yeah, that was, have you that read was my all guess. these books? Okay. Yeah, have you read all those books or these books? Yeah, yeah, that's. A, yeah, and that, yeah. that's, that's the sign of someone who truly loves books. If yeah. that question is asked of you. Sorry, I totally we, derailed us. What were we talking about? Oh, that's about? okay. I wasn't sure. I was still in the moment of like, maybe I totally glitched and derailed. But no, regardless, no. Dr. Bo, thank you for your extensive work in all the things that you do. You do it to such a high level. And that is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why we wanted to have you on the podcast. So for our listeners, Ryan, if I have this right, this is going to... This is going to be broadcasted on the 27th, right? October, of October. October 27th. That's right. So some of our churches uh, maybe are coming off celebrating Reformation Sunday uh, on the 25th. Uh, but we know that at the end of October is usually a time in which we celebrate the Reformation. And so, Dr. Bo, we wanted to have you on to maybe tell our listeners a little bit more about why we celebrate that day? Why is it important? Well, that's a great question, and uh, I hope I can give a concise and to-the-point answer. First of all, and ultimately, we do not celebrate, we're not celebrating a person, although that's what many people hear. Oh, we're celebrating Martin Luther, or some people might say, oh, is this Martin Luther King Day? You know, no, uh, this is uh, Martin Luther, uh, that uh, the person of the Reformation. But we're ultimately not celebrating him. We're not necessarily celebrating his life, although Reformation celebrations might involve the showing of a Martin Luther film. Uh, they might involve uh, some kind of narration in a sermon about Martin Luther and his history and family. We're not necessarily celebrating his accomplishments, which are more than you could possibly celebrate on any given Sunday. We are actually giving thanks to the Lord and remembering what the Lord brought to us through this instrument or this servant of his, which we know as uh, Martin Luther. So this becomes a time in the church year, uh, the calendar year, uh, for us to recognize the biblical truths that God brought 
back into the limelight, back into our consciousness, uh, back into the message that we should be proclaiming uh, to the world with greater clarity and faithfulness to Scripture. So we are really celebrating. Uh, it should lead to Christ because uh, and what he has done for us because that's what burst forth at the time of the Reformation, and it just happened to be Martin Luther who was the one that God used at that point. Now, he wasn't the first. There were many others that were we call forerunners to the Reformation that were involved uh, in this gradually breaking forth, the bringing in of the light of God's truth. And uh, now there are, of course, many things that broke forth, and sometimes we think of grace alone, Christ alone, and faith alone, and we think of Scripture alone. Uh, we might think of those four great solas, uh, alones, that captures our the message that we're going to um, bring forth on Reformation a Day celebration. And uh, so we celebrate it because of this, at this time in history, 1517 uh, to 1520, but we actually celebrate it on the day that it is acknowledged that perhaps Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. That began the opening of the window of Scripture, so to speak, and the light starts shining out into the lives of persons and then gradually into the lives of the churches and gradually uh, throughout the whole world. Now, there are many things that we could say about this, but I think, uh, let me suggest that um, what I think is at the heart of this uh, is the light, the truth of the righteousness of God that is given, uh, imputed to people who believe so that they are clothed with not their own righteousness, which is no righteousness at all, but they are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of his life and the fruits of his death and resurrection, whereby he provides us with a righteousness. We could, we could talk a little bit more about that, but I'll pause here for interaction. So one of my questions uh, that immediately comes to mind, maybe our listeners are familiar uh, with when Luther uh, posted on the door at the Wittenberg Church. One of the things that I try to point out to people is that, and maybe I have this wrong and I'd love for you to maybe correct it, but uh, usually that wasn't a, uh, a slam up against that church, but usually people posted stuff to the church doors because those were the major in and out. That was like a bulletin board at the time, right? Right. It, it was, uh, uh, these theses were posted there uh, for discussion purposes. That uh, this was going to, let's have a discussion about these 95 theses. And they were in response to the, con the historical context was that there was a man by the name of Tetzel who was selling indulgences 
and that upon a purchasing an indulgence, you could shorten your stay or eliminate your stay in purgatory. And so uh, the saying goes, as the coin rings in the coffer, so a soul springs from purgatory. Uh, that was the historical context that uh, initiated Luther's formulating or writing of these statements. A thesis was a, a statement for uh, discussion uh, that uh, would be held then in the, in the context of can you buy forgiveness of sins? Can you actually buy your way out of purgatory? Uh, what about repentance and faith and how does all of that relate to this? And so that was the immediate kind of historical context that resulted in uh, Luther's posting of these 95 theses. However, uh, there's a, a long history that is really, really uh, working up to this point. Uh, it didn't happen just all of a sudden. You know, one of the, one of the questions that um, uh, people can raise is uh, what was Luther's goal with the Reformation? I would say that he didn't have a, a goal uh, for a Reformation. So in other words, uh, it's very safe to say that Luther didn't have a Reformation agenda or he didn't have a Reformation strategy. Mm. Uh, there was no group led by Luther, okay, let's gather and let's come up with a strategy to reform mm -hmm. the church. Yeah, that was not in his mind at all. Yeah, his and, idea wasn't to sabotage, right? He wasn't out to be a saboteur. He wanted full re reform, right? Right. Yeah. So what happened was not what he was seeking to accomplish. The no. results were nothing, n nothing that he had in mind. Right. Yeah. Uh, hmm. In fact, he was... Um, at this particular period of, of his time, of his life, he was not anti-papacy uh, against the Pope. He was not against the Catholic Church. Uh, he was not against the councils. This was not going on in his mind at this time at all. In fact, we could probably uh, get a better picture of this as we, if we back up a bit in Luther's life, that Luther lived his life differently than most of us live our lives. Uh, we have an expression in Latin uh, that's very helpful. It's called corum deo. Uh, that is, that uh, means in the face of or in the presence of God. So Luther lived his life very conscious of God. This was something that he was very much aware of. In fact, when he was going to return to uh, law school at the University of Erfurt, uh, there was a thunderstorm that took place. And out north of Erfurt, there's a little place called Stotterheim. And uh, Luther was there. And, and lightning struck. And the story is told that Luther uh, prostrated himself, to the, fell down to the ground, and he prayed to the patron uh, saint of the miners. Luther grew up in a family of miners. His father was a miner. And he cried out to this saint, dear Saint Anne, 
help me and I will become a monk. So for Luther, there was a quest within his being that was kind of special. I, I don't know if we could say that all people felt it to the same degree, but Luther had, <clears throat> and some people might say that he had an overactive conscience, but Luther was very much concerned about what does it mean to be right with God? What He was concerned about Coram Deo, hmm. uh, righteous, being righteous or right before God. And one of the ways that you could have certainty about that was that you could go to the monastery and be a monk. That was a sure way. I mean, that was the way that you could have the most certainty on uh, being right with God and, uh, and on the path that would ultimately result in that. So that's what Luther did. And he entered the monastery at, the, at Erfurt, and, uh, the, and it happened to be an Augustinian monastery that he entered there. And um, uh, basically that was you know, fairly early in his, in his life, uh, in 1505, uh, that uh, Luther took the vow then to become a monk. Well, during his time in the monastery, he did not obtain the kind of peace of conscience and peace of heart that he thought he would. In fact, Luther uh, was a model monk. He held the records, so to speak, for being the most austere, faithful, uh, disciplined uh, monk. And because he was seeing that um, this is very much uh, on the journey of, um, of salvation, and you needed to fulfill the way of salvation. Luther grew up in a medieval understanding of salvation that you are to do the, the best that you can, and God is going to reward that with grace. And um, you need to, you really needed to uh, achieve uh, to your max. Now, you know, when we say, well, I did my best, the moment we say that, we say, you know, I don't think I really did my best. Mm -hmm. What really is one's best? Well, all of us who are in this interview and, and those of you that have so graciously uh, joined us in this conversation know that you never know with certainty that you've done your best and you never know that your best is good enough. Hmm. Especially if your best is going to be evaluated by the most holy all righteous God. Now, those of us that are average students, we kind of hope for a teacher that grades on the curve. Uh, but, <laughs> but you know, and we we're we're hope we're we're hoping we're in the bell, uh, either at the top, yeah. you know, in the middle of it, or off to the one side to the right of it. You know, yeah. uh, we certainly don't want to be on the on the start of the bell, but we want to be in the middle or off to the to the end of the bell, uh, the bell curve. For those of you that understand that. Uh, in the grading system, well, God has no bell in his curve. Of uh, It's straight, top-level, 100% righteousness. And so Luther said, 
I hate that word righteousness. He hated it with a passion. And when he was, he was, uh, he was very um, dedicated and given to reading the Bible. He loved the Bible. And in fact, at some point in his life, he said that um, he knew the Bible so well that if you quoted a phrase, he could find the page on which it was found. Uh, one of the delights about reading uh, Luther and, and uh, more, uh, we have the Weimar Ausgabe, the critical edition, and then we have the translations of that, of Luther's works. Luther's works spanned at least 110 volumes or more uh, in the critical Weimar Ausgabe in the German edition, uh, which includes both his German and Latin works. And we're still publishing them in English. I think there are going to be 75 or 80 now shortly uh, completed. Um, wow. I do not wow. have the Weimar Ausgabe. I'm waiting for somebody to buy it. Uh, <laughs> I'll add on to my house so that I can have a place for it. But anyhow, yeah, this would this would be the perfect place for you yeah. to ask our listeners <laughs> to gift you one. Ryan's yeah. a pro at doing that. Right. I got well, a full disclosure. We haven't received in anything. Form. Oh, nice. But anyhow, I can't. Uh, I haven't got the details on that. But anyhow, <laughs> I have I, one of the one of the delights of my life has been going to Japan or Taiwan and teach at the uh, seminary there. And uh, one of the good things about that is that they have the Weimar Ausgabe there. And so I would uh, be able to use that uh, wonderful edition while I worked in the library there. We don't have it at our seminary uh, here in Fergus. We have the St. Louis, the Vault edition of Luther's works, but not the Weimar. Wow. So yeah. anyhow, uh, Luther would read his Bible. And whenever he came across that word righteous or righteousness, he hated it. Hmm. It was it was a word that reminded him what of a quality of God, and that quality of God was the quality by which he judged us. So remember Coram Dale in the presence of, you know, uh, you maybe know some people that are really righteous. They're uncomfortable to be around. You just feel, oh, I'm not dressed right. I think I'm looking a little bit inferior. These people seem to have it all together. And you get in their <laughs> presence and you say, oh, man, I'm just nervous, you know. Uh, yeah. So imagine being in the presence of what you know about a holy, righteous God. And this is 24-7. Mm. You know, there is no escaping of this. So that's Luther's situation in life now uh someday i think somebody should should uh develop a movie you know uh that's uh, like this uh you remember uh who shrunk the kids yeah remember that movie yeah i think that's honey, the right title kids that the i right think title? it's honey i shrunk, honey, the, I shrunk kids. the kids honey yeah. i shrunk the kids yeah right that's a well somebody has shrunk god hmm. i have shrunk god what I mean by that is that people do not live with the same kind of consciousness of a holy, righteous, all-powerful God that Luther lived with during his time. God has, uh, sometimes in seminary, I try to draw it as a shrinking triangle that has just shrunk down 
to maybe minuscule size. Mm -hmm. And whereas Luther, big God, big problem. Luther's problem was God. That was his problem. And it was his problem because of who he was in the presence of this God. Mm -hmm. And so Luther went to the monastery to resolve that. And to, to obtain, to be on the way to a righteousness that would result in acceptance by, approval by, peace with this very holy, righteous God. And, and uh, he didn't find that in the monastery. He read scripture, memorized scripture. He had a priest that he went to, Father Johann Stelpitz. <laughs> he was an interesting guy. He was really helpful to Luther on the way to the Reformation. And Luther would confess his sins, and he might be there for hours because wow. he thought he made confession a work. If I don't confess every sin, it remains unforgiven. Mm. And so he would leave Father Stalpitz, and then he'd remember, oh, I didn't talk to him about this one. And he'd head back. <laughs> he wore out Father Stalpitz. I mean, he's a man, good night. Come on, Luther. Oh, the, talk about a scrupulous conscience. I mean, this is unending. You're wearing me out, you know? Yeah. And uh, so um, Luther uh, was struggling with this, and um, he graduated from. Um, he became a priest, and even there as a priest, he still did not have uh, this peace with God. He, f he was living Coram Deo in the presence mm. of a holy, righteous God 24-7. Then he began to lecture on the Bible. Uh, he actually uh, started his, his uh, lecturing on the Bible as a young professor at the University of Wittenberg, which is kind of just north of Erfurt. And uh, so in 1508, uh, after he was ordained, remember mm -hmm. he's born 1483. So um, he was uh, 1483, 17 and five. He was about 23 when he was in the monastery, uh, went there 1505. And, um, and uh, then he, uh, I guess that would, uh, yeah, make him 22. And uh, in 1508, he, um, 1507, he was ordained as a priest and, and served his first Mass. And then he started lecturing in um, philosophy in Wittenberg, moral philosophy. And then he became, um, uh, he got his bac baccalaureate in biblical studies. And, um, and then finally, in 1512, he became uh, a doctor of theology and was professor at Bible in Wittenberg, or as we say in English, Wittenberg, at the university there, which was a young university, and uh, he became one of the major professors at that university. Well, where did he, what was he lecturing on? He was lecturing on the Psalms. The word righteousness comes up a lot of places in the Psalms. And every time that word came up, he was terrified. He, he, he wished he could remove that word from the Bible, but he couldn't. The Bible was God's word. Can't take it out. 
it's there. Then he started lecturing in uh, Romans. So in the fall of 1515, he was actually lecturing in the book of Romans. And it was there that the curtain began to open a bit. And light started to come through. And it was particularly Romans uh, 1.17 that became really um, the... Um, where the light started breaking through. And uh, so the Reformation we celebrate also because it was a back to the Bible movement. And as a back to the Bible, that meant it was back to Christ. And so in uh, just, I'll just read that um, verse so that we uh, keep it faithful to Scripture. So in Romans 1.17, um, he says, Paul says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Well, the verse right before that, 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And then we start verse 17. For in it, well, what's the antecedent? What does the it refer to? And so the Greek word here for gospel means good news. And Luther was struck with a puzzle. How can righteousness be connected with good news? For it says, in it, hmm. the good news the righteousness of God is revealed. He had not heard any good news in righteousness. It was only bad news. And as he studied this text, he began to see that there are more, there's more than one way to understand the word righteousness and be faithful to Scripture. In some cases, righteousness refers to that quality or attribute of God. But in this case, it refers to the good news of God's way of putting people right with himself. A righteousness that was outside of us not produced by us, but imputed to us by faith. Wow. And this became a revolution for Luther. And gradually, as the beam of that light of righteousness, that biblical truth, expanded, uh, it impacted every aspect of Luther's life, and of course, he could no longer keep it to himself. And so he began uh, to teach this and preach this. And I would say that the greater clarity to this happened after he nailed the 95 Theses. Uh, one of my favorite Luther scholars is Martin Brecht, a German theologian, uh, historian, Reformation historian, 
who wrote, I think, the best biography on Luther. It's a three-volume uh, set, um, delightful to read in German and in English. Uh, but anyhow, it's a, it's a fantastic work. And um, Martin Brecht, I, I just want to share a quotation uh, from, his, uh, from his volume, uh, volume one, and um, it's on page 229, and it's part of the chapter of the inner turning point, the Reformation discovery. For years, Luther had obviously been probing these insights. Sometimes he appeared to possess them already, but then they were overcome by other ideas. By his own account, the decisive breakthrough came in 1518, when some certainty we can date when the new recognition came to him. It was something he recognized, a discovery, a light came on. In February, Luther was still identifying righteousness as self-accusation. But the new concept is then present in its full clarity and unambiguity in the Sermon on the Two Kinds of Righteousness. This sermon is based on the Christological hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, it must be a sermon from Palm Sunday, 28th of March, 1518. Righteousness is immediately identified quite clearly as the righteousness of Christ. Righteousness, he is righteous and justified, justifies through faith in the sense of 1 Corinthians 1.30 and the I am sayings of John's gospel. A person can confidently boast, mine is that which Christ did, said, suffered, and died, end of quote. He is the bridegroom who shares everything with the soul, his bride. With his celebrated image, he now describes how righteousness is mediated. This is what the promises mean. Everything which Christ has is ours and is given to us unworthy ones freely out of pure mercy. Through faith in Christ, his righteousness becomes our righteousness and everything which belongs to him becomes ours. <laughs> how about that, huh? This is the meaning of Romans 1.17. The righteousness of faith is identified with the righteousness of God. It absorbs all sins in its boundlessness. Hey, this is better than any Charmin. This really <laughs> absorbs. It absorbs sin like nothing else. It is the source of righteous con conduct. Where Psalm 31 speaks about your righteousness, this he now understands as the righteousness of Christ, my God. In this sermon, Luther does not even mention the concepts of Christ and faith. Doing this is an unmistakably clear and joyful tone. Here something has changed. This was the reformatory discovery. Scarcely a year later, which formed an, uh, a year later in the second lectures on the Psalms, Luther was already presenting this understanding of God's righteousness as canonical. In other words, the single correct one 
which also formed the norm for his theology. God's righteousness is not that by which God is righteous and condemns the unrighteous, but that by which God clothes the person when he justifies him, referring to Romans 1.17 and Romans 3.21, he says, it is the mercy or justifying grace itself through which we are declared righteous. Thus, the reformatory, the essential center of the content, content of Luther's discovery, consists in the recognition that in Christ, God's Son, true man and true God, God freely gives us his righteousness, wisdom, and strength. That is the content of the gospel. And this faith believes, and thereby it is justified. From 1518 onward, toward onward, the relational scheme of Christ, gospel, and faith forms the center, the pivotal point, the norm, the principle, and the creative driving force of Luther's theology. So uh, is, so far, Martin Brecht. So uh, that is really what we celebrate. It's a mm. celebration of a good news breakthrough. Wow. Thank, thank you for breaking down just the, and explaining really in depth what was central to Luther's discovery there. I, I think it's easy to hear the Reformation story and, oh, here's a, here's a young guy angrily hammering criticisms on the door and starts a rebellion. And, and really, that's a, that's a mischaracterization of, of what really, really took place, what you're describing. It's about a redis rediscovery of the gospel. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. 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 And along with that is the other things that we talk about. Grace. He discovered this yeah. gospel yeah. is grace alone. Yeah. This good news is received through faith alone, not faith plus some good works. This gospel has been accomplished by Christ alone, not me, not Christ and me and my little bit, but all of Christ. Yeah. And this gospel is discovered only in the word of Scripture. You don't find it anywhere else. So Luther was going out, as, he, as you said earlier, he's hoping to, to start a conversation within the church about, about this discovery of Scripture. But what happens? Can you tell us a little bit about the consequences of these years from mm. 1517 to 1520? What, what exactly, you know, what was the reaction of the, the established church? And, and just, you know, kind of briefly, some of the, the huge consequences in the, the decades and centuries after. Well, yeah, um, there were, let me, let me say this, that um, there were a, a number of disputations when Luther had graduate students that, that were studying under him, for their final exam, he would prepare a list of theses, and then the students were to discuss and debate these theses. That was part of their final kind of an exam. So there were the sets of theses about the doctrine of the human person, and then there was the 95 theses, which he posted on the door. And I, I should say, uh, should just quote uh, the first of the of the 95 uh, theses from from Luther's works. 
and I, I want to come back to something about uh, that relates to your question, Ryan, and that relates to what was what was Luther really trying to accomplish here? And I think the best way to get at this is to hear Luther himself. And here's what in his in the own his own document of the ninety five theses he writes: out of love and zeal for truth and the desire to bring it to light, the following theses will be publicly discussed at Wittenberg under the chairmanship of the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and Sacred Theology, and regularly appointed lecturer on these subjects at that place. He requests that those who cannot be present to debate orally with us will do so by letter. And then the first one is when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, quoting from Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And then it goes on with the 94 others. Now, the point I want to make here is that out of love and zeal for truth and the desire to bring it to life, to light, the following mm. theses are presented. Mm. So when you uh, want to think about what was he up to, why yeah. was he doing this? And um, then there is an explanation to the theses uh, that we also have. And he says, because this is a theological disputation, I shall repeat here the declaration usually made in the schools in order that I may pacify the individuals who perhaps are offended by the simple text of the disputation. And I'll just read a bit here. First, I testify that I desire to say or maintain absolutely nothing except, first of all, what is in the Holy Scriptures and can be maintained from them. And then what is in and from the writings of the Church Fathers and is accepted by the Roman Church and preserved both in the canons and the papal decrees. But if any proposition cannot be proved or disproved from them, I shall simply maintain it for the sake of the debate. So he really wants to be uh, faithful. So it's out of to scripture and it's out of love. Well, as a result of his nailing these theses, uh, whether they were nailed, obviously they were dis dis debated. And so that called the 95 theses called into question the whole understanding of repentance. Now, here is a, an interesting point. Luther once said that when we lose the study of the original languages, we are at risk of losing the gospel. Now, what did Luther mean by that, and why, why would he say such a thing? Well, when uh, Luther began to teach Bible at the University of Wittenberg, they, of course, had uh, the Latin Vulgate as their text. But also at this particular time, there were new texts in the original languages that were being made known and being made available, such as uh, the Erasmian text. And Luther would do his studies out of the original uh, Greek and Hebrew. 
And he had a good friend, younger colleague that came to join the faculty at Wittenberg by the name of Philip Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon was a, uh, an outstanding uh, teacher. In fact, he is recognized in Germany today as one of the outstanding teachers uh, of his time. Well, he taught Greek, and uh, Luther would uh, get some assistance from him in his learning of Greek. So Luther is reading in the Latin Vulgate for the word for repentance, and in Latin it's poinitensia. And as that got understood by the people, it was understood as do penance. Well, Luther, in his study of the original language, learned that the Greek word for poinitensia is metanoia, repent, a change of mind, a change of heart. And immediately wow. Luther began to discover uh, the value of the original text and the original language. And so that's why he starts this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so this then came in conflict with the understanding of penance, and that repentance was something I do in payment for my sin mm -hmm. that would result in my earning of grace and ultimate acceptance by God. Not only did it call into question the whole indulgence uh, controversy, which was a way for the church to raise money for the building of the basilica in Rome, uh, which didn't always set well with the Germans. I mean, why should we send German money uh, to Rome? Uh, so there was an economic side of this, but there was a spiritual side of what did it, what did it really mean to repent and be rightly uh, related uh, to God with the righteousness of Christ. Well, this led from one disputation to another. We want to hear more and more and more about this. And ultimately, uh, this uh, led uh, to um, Luther, in, in, uh, he began to write many pieces, kept writing and preaching and teaching. And as a result, this led to a horrendous conflict between uh, Luther and um, the uh, Pope and the Catholic Church. And uh, he was called upon to recant or to be uh, excommunicated. Well, he was uh, transported. He, he went on a trip, just to make this brief, went on a trip to Worms, Germany. And we had there the famous Diet of Worms, which began in, in January 27, 1521, uh, where Luther was on trial um, as appearance there. And uh, that was a very serious trial uh, where he would be, uh, if he did not recant, he would be excommunicated from the Catholic Church and not only that, but he would be considered a person who was should be put to death. So, very interesting little story about Luther. 
when he was there at the Diet of Worms. The night, uh, one of the nights when he was there, he went and made a pastoral call on one of the people that, that lived there. That was a very interesting touch of Luther. It shows his heart. And uh, I believe that uh, the, real, the Reformation really is about um, uh, pastoring or pastoral care or spiritual care. Hmm. This was, the Reformation was really about um, people who needed spiritual care, beginning with Luther himself, and the gospel was the only answer. So everything Luther wrote, basically, had its this focus on how this related to the spiritual or pastoral care of people. Well, at the Diet of Worms, uh, he, he was showing his books, and he asked if he uh, would recant. And he said, unless I'm convinced by the clear word of God um, and sound reason, that would be his way of speaking about the clarity of Scripture and the right reading of Scripture. Um, he believed that Scripture was clear, that uh, even a lay person could read the Bible with understanding. Uh, and so he said, unless you can convince me uh, that I am in error, uh, by the scriptures and sound reason, I will not recant. And we get the famous saying here from this incident uh, in German, Hier stehe ich, ich kann nichts anders. Here I stand, I can do nothing else or otherwise. And so Luther became a fugitive. His own people uh, took him captive as he was on his way back to Wittenberg. And they hauled him off as a, as a captive to the Wartburg Castle, which lies right outside the city, the German city of Eisenach. And I've been there several times. It's always a delight to go there. Uh, it's only about 20 minutes from where my wife was born and grew up. And uh, so we uh, have had family that have lived there nearby. And uh, we were just there three years ago and spent a delightful day there as we celebrated uh, in 2017, uh, the 400th um, anniversary of the Reformation. And uh, we happened to be there during that time in the summer. So I'm always reminded of what he, he was taken captive there. Well, that became a very stressful period of his life, but he didn't waste time. He began his translation of the New Testament into the common German language of his people. And he completed that in a matter of weeks or months. And uh, then he began his work ultimately on the translation of the Old Testament. And ultimately, uh, we have still today being used in Germany, Luther's translation of the Bible. And he translated the whole Bible. And, and he is one of the, another thing that we remember from the Reformation is that Luther was uh, one of the most outstanding biblical translators. And biblical translators today still study his principles of translation. In fact, uh, when the 2011 uh, version of the or 2010 of the NIV was presented uh, to those of us that gathered at ETS one year, uh, Dr. Douglas Moo gave a lecture in which he uh, talked about the or the translation principles behind the NIV, 
and referenced uh, that they drew from uh, the translation principles used by Martin Luther. That's um, another side of what Luther gave uh, to uh, us in terms of uh, missionary work and Bible translation and this sort of thing. Also, uh, Luther is, is recognized uh, as being one of the great facilitators of the German language. Um, and he is widely recognized for his um, ability and what he con contributed uh, in the development and, and uh, use of the German language. I want to read uh, another point that I came across as I, I sought to do a little preparation uh, for this um, conversation today. Um, a Luther scholar by the name of uh, Robert Kolb um, I wrote a delightful little book called Martin Luther, Confessor of the Faith. And um, um, here's a couple of paragraphs that relate to the celebration of the Reformation. In 2000, the American magazine Life placed Martin Luther third among the 100 most important figures of the millennium. In 2000, the American magazine Life placed Martin Luther third among the 100 most important figures of the millennium. Following Thomas Edison and Christopher Columbus, Life heralded his posting of his 95 theses as the third most important event of the period behind Gutenberg's invention of movable type and Columbus's landing in the Americas. Wow. In 2003, a German television network drew more votes than national elections for a contest that found Martin Luther the second greatest German of all time, after Conrad Adenauer. Such surveys flaunt their own subjectivity, but nonetheless, Luther looms large in the public's imagination in parts of the Western world even yet. I thought that yeah. was yeah. quite interesting. I'd read this some years ago and uh, thought that would be an important point to bring to our little conversation today. Well, yeah. Um, uh, that's kind of uh, another side of the Reformation that we celebrate. Thank you for uh, diving into that for us. It, it really is remarkable to to think about what all that has changed as a result of the Reformation. Not, I mean, the, the German language, their culture, but not just Germany. The entire the, the entire Western world, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Church itself, right? Um, Prior yeah. to the Reformation, I mean, the Reformation birthed most of the denominations, different expressions of the church that exist today. Yeah. It can be hard to it'd be hard to overestimate the impact this event had on the world. Yeah, yeah, it it would definitely. I mean, we think of uh, I mentioned the four solas, mm. which all Christian celebrate. 
um, Christian churches, especially in Protestantism, regardless of what stream of Protestantism you are in, you have a celebration connection, a Thanksgiving connection to the Reformation. And then along with that, one other one that I didn't mention, uh, and uh, the person I did my doctoral work on uh, often mentioned this to me, that uh, we should also remember uh, the priesthood of all believers, which was uh, a great contribution of uh, Luther and the Reformation. Yeah. You know, as we think about the practical implications of this for everyday life, the word that broke forth uh, at the time of the Reformation is the word that I need for every day. It's so significant. Whether I, whether I have the qualms of conscience that Luther had and recognize the need for that righteousness or not, the need for that righteousness for me is the, is the same as it was for Luther. <clears throat> I might not realize it as much as he did, but I should because it's the, I need that same righteousness that he needed. And um, another practical implication of the Reformation was the doc, uh, the, uh, of, of, of vocation, our callings in life, our calling as citizens, our calling as parents. Luther wrote the small catechism to help parents instruct their children in the Christian faith. Um, I have had a number of pastors from other churches who do not have a catechism tradition say to me, you don't know what a great treasure your catechism is and what a great tool for teaching the Christian faith. And um, I said, wow, thank you for reminding me of that. And so the, the gift of, of the small catechism, the gift of the large catechism, uh, all gifts to us uh, that were birthed uh, out of the Reformation. And uh, we, we are grateful for those gifts that uh, we receive and we rejoice in and um, hopefully are a fabric of our everyday life. And, I mean, all, all of those documents are used to elevate our understanding of scripture too. You know, they're, they're taken from scriptural basis and given to us so that we can better understand, you know, not to stand in place of, but to, but to elevate them up. And that's, what's always so important that I try to point out to people is, you know, Luther really made the Bible accessible to so many people. And in a way, he is the reason why we can understand it in the the way and the breath that we can. And so it's it's great, the practical application, especially as you bring that out. You know, the small catechism, I, I always point that out. That was Luther's attempt to bring the Bible into the family so that yeah. the, so that the family could teach and have something accessible for them to share with yeah. with their family, which is so important. And I think he knew that like faith really started in the household and if he could cultivate yeah. that it would it would really have an impact so yeah that's tremendous and at the at the end of his catechism he had the table of duties so what's the duty of a father what's the duty of a mother what's the duty of the children what's the duty of the master and and uh, a very list of uh, 
table uh, of, of um, duties and callings. Mm. Uh, another point that I could just, uh, that came bursting forth from the Reformation was hymnody, um, hymns. Uh, Luther wanted the church to be a singing church, and he wanted the church to be, be hearing preaching and singing in their language. <clears throat> and so um, uh, he, he was a writer of many hymns. I don't uh, have on the tip of my uh, finger or on the... Uh, right at the front of my mind, uh, how many hymns he wrote, but he was recognized as one of the great hymn writers. Mm. And uh, there are many, many, many hymns that he has written. Um, some of them uh, we have sung, like a mighty fortress is our God, for example. That's probably the most well-known hymn uh, that uh, Luther uh, wrote. And, I, and I've heard that he has like multiple stanzas, you know, like we only sing maybe four, but I'm pretty sure like he wrote 90 stanzas or something crazy <laughs> like that of a mighty fortress. And I was like, that's amazing that. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I think it, the, as we look back and even as we look at the impact today, it's not hard to see how the reformation has really impacted uh, our church worship and life and um the way that we really live you know luther has really made a mark through the reformation on all of our lives and i think that that's a huge reason why when it comes around in october we remember it we like like we keep saying we celebrate it because of these truths yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's right i think something remarkable too about this time you know while we're we're in the middle of covid right now this is a time where we're seeing families mm. by necessity have to be the ones, parents have to be the ones to disciple their children really during this yeah. time. And it's remarkable to see in many eyes turning back to that, that catechism, mm -hmm. you know, that five, yeah. that 500 year old catechism oh. has yeah. uh, incredibly valuable and relevant yeah. today, you know, in the midst of the, the challenges we're facing. Now, at Luther's time, there was the, you had the small catechism, and then you had the large catechism, which was really kind of an, an expansion of the small catechism. But at, at his immediate time, there were no explanations to the catechism, but that's, a, that's the next level that pastors began to write mm -hmm. explanations and expanded them and put them in question and answer form, along with supporting scripture passages. And there's a whole range of those. And I might say that the catechisms were not new with Luther, uh, but the way Luther reshaped the catechism, put it in the rhythm of law and gospel. And so he, he uh, oh, reshaped okay. uh, in a theological way the catechisms that were existent, in existence before him. But uh, yeah, it's, um, that's another great contribution uh, that came forth from the from the Reformation. Yeah, so so many things to be able to share and to point to, and so many future podcasts too. Like I, I don't want to put you on the spot, Doctor Bo, but we'd love to have you back again on another podcast if you're feeling up to it, or if you have the time to fit us into your schedule. We would love to give you the opportunity to share more. Maybe the next one that we talk about is the Catechism itself. And we hey, dig a little bit deeper into those. I would two. love to, any way that I can uh, serve the church and um, 
pass on what others have given to me. Hey, sign me up. Hmm. I'm ready. Tremendous. Yeah, I, I hope this is a blessing. Uh, just to be able to talk about these things brings tears to my eyes and uh, fills my heart with joy uh, to be able to uh, share this. Uh, and I trust it will be a uplifting blessing and people will be helped spiritually. So reminded of these biblical truths. Yeah, and I'm sure that they will be. Thanks for taking some time out to share your knowledge with us. It's It makes me miss systematics class and being in <laughs> seminary with you. I miss just sitting back and being able to talk through theology in this way. And I know that a lot of our listeners who will be listening maybe will be experiencing you now for the very first time. But for those who have sat in on one of your classes, this is exactly the the amazingness that we get. I mean, you, the, the way that you're able to explain stuff and, you know, the little nuances that you bring in in order to make people remember, like I will be looking now uh, at the amazingness of imputed righteousness of Christ as toilet paper, you know, <laughs> the absorbentness of Christ's sacrifice for us is and I would have never thought of that, but you know what? It works so well. And so I thank you for those illustrations and thanks for yeah. being on the podcast yeah. Uh, yeah. today. You're welcome to our listeners. We thank you also for listening. Hopefully you glean this. And this is one of those podcasts where you're probably going to go back and want to listen to it again. I mean, there's just so much to take in and we appreciate you listening to us. Uh, we would love to cover topics that you would find helpful if there are any that come to your mind, we would love to hear from you. You can email Ryan and I at podcast at clbforge.org. So that's podcast at clbforge.org. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and also the YouTube channel now that mm -hmm. is live. And so don't forget to, to look that up. Uh, I think if you just search CLB Forge podcast, you can find us on YouTube now, but maybe you'd prefer just to hear our voices. Uh, as opposed to looking at our faces. Uh, but regardless, we'd love to hear from you, and we would love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or a colleague. Thanks so much for joining us. Dr. Bo, you did a tremendous job. Thank you for your knowledge. We appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you See you later, Bo. guys.